Why is no one talking about continued attacks on our power grid? We take a deep dive on this special edition of the Doc Washburn Show. Welcome to the Voice of the Resistance with Doc Washburn. We're the show that pushes back against the Uniparty and lets you in on all the news that traditional talk radio is all too often afraid to talk about. This is episode number 299 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show for Sunday, December 11th, 2022. Just so you understand where I'm coming from, I was fired by one of the biggest radio companies in America, Cumulus Media, simply because I refused their vaccine mandate. More evidence comes out all the time that a lot of people are having serious negative reactions to the vaccines. Also, I will never call Joe Biden president because it's obvious the last U.S. presidential election was stolen. I will never pretend a man can become a woman, and I will never forget about the January 6th political prisoners most Republican politicians refuse to even mention. And August 8th, 2022, the day the Biden regime's secret police conducted an unprecedented and unconstitutional raid on the home of a former president of the United States is a day that shall live in infamy. So this is a really different kind of talk show. We're unmasked, uncensored, and unfiltered. If you'd like to support what we do, go to our website, docwashburn.com, and click on the button that says Become a Patron. Also, please remember to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. Okay, scientists have been warning for years about the possibility of an EMP attack, an electromagnetic pulse attack. The concern is that a hostile foreign power would detonate an EMP device high above the United States and it would effectively take out most of our electric grid. A country without electricity would revert to what life was like over 150 years ago. Very few of us are prepared to live completely off the grid, completely without electricity, as it were. So most of the population of the USA would not survive for very long. The possibility of an EMP attack has been discussed going back to at least the 1970s in this country. The last I heard, it would take roughly $3 billion to harden our electric grid to protect us from an EMP attack. But one president after another and one Congress after another has continued to kick that can down the road. I guess we'd rather spend a lot more than that. Rather send many, many times that to the wonderful, peaceful paradise of Ukraine. And waste money on all kinds of stuff. But not $3 billion to harden our power grid to make it invulnerable to an EMP attack. Anyway, speaking of the vulnerability of our power grid, had you heard there was a recent attack on a power station in Moore County, North Carolina, earlier this month of December 2022. Now, Moore County is between Charlotte and Fayetteville, North Carolina, but a lot closer to Fayetteville. It's a home of Pinehurst and Southern Pine, so it's very well known for its golf courses. Anyway, the recent attack on our power grid in that area of east-central North Carolina seems to be part of an ongoing pattern. I have a couple of audio clips from a recent interview over at News Nation on television. Now, that's where Chris Cuomo went after CNN fired him. He's now trying to do straight journalism instead of the extreme left-leaning stuff he was known for over at CNN. So let's check it out and see what he says and see who his guest is. 
All right, this is one of those bonus segments where you're going to see why you don't sometimes hear what you should hear. You know why? The media doesn't want to get blamed for spreading a problem, but it's a nonsensical concern. Attacks on power grids, okay? It's easier than we thought it was. Now, this is where the risk comes in. Why are you telling them that? Why are you telling them that? You're going to make it happen more. No, it has been happening more. You just don't know it. There have been attacks. I'm looking at the stats right now. They've been happening, and we and we just handle them as one-offs. You don't see them as the pattern of what's been happening here, okay? And they've been knowing about this in the government. They know the grid and the power stations are vulnerable. And you know why they don't do anything about it? Because they spend money to keep regulation out of their pockets. And this... They keep they spend money to keep regulation out of their pockets. I guess he's talking about the power companies. But that doesn't make any sense because the power companies don't want to go down, that's for sure. This is what we get. But here's the good news. We can do something about it. Let's bring in power grid researcher Michael Maybe, who says the grid is in danger, but we can do something about it. It's good to have you. Thank you very much for having me. So this happens a lot more often than we talk about it, huh? Yes, correct. Since 2010, there have been 919 physical attacks against the electric grid. And this year, up through August, there have been 107. So this isn't even counting uh, what just happened in North Carolina. But uh, just from January through August, there have been 107. So uh, we've known about this for decades. The federal government, the first report I've been able to find is from 1981, four decades ago, about physical attacks against the electric grid and the, the type of uh, destruction, death, and economic damage that could cause to our country. Now, are they all the same, or is what we saw in North Carolina new? Do you believe this is domestic terrorism? Well, bless his heart. He's trying to do straight journalism, okay? But domestic terrorism? So it doesn't occur to him to even think about asking, could it possibly be an attack by the Russians? Could it possibly be an attack by the Chinese? Could it possibly be an attack by drug cartels or Islamic jihadists paid by Iran from their stash of billions given them by Obama and Biden to attack Americans? No, no. No, no, no. It would not occur to Chris Cuomo to ask about any of those possibilities. It couldn't be any of that because why? Well, you can take the boy out of CNN, but maybe you can't take the CNN out of the boy. FBI Director Christopher Wray said domestic violent extremism, whatever that is, is our number one terrorist threat. And despite the fact that Fredo Cuomo is trying to play it straight with actual journalism since he switched jobs, he just doesn't have the intellectual curiosity to vet pieces of information that conform to his confirmation bias. But but we do, and we shall. Anyway, here is the rest of the interview, which, other than that one little slip-up, uh, presents some pretty important information. You know, what's the scope? 
Right. So the scope of these um, attacks, these 919 attacks in 2010, run the gamut from vandalism up through spectacular coordinated attacks, such as we saw in Metcalf, California in 2013, which most people don't even know about, but multiple assailants um, attacking a substation with rifle fire and taking the entire substation uh, offline. Nobody was ever caught during that attack. Now, we also shouldn't take comfort in the fact that, you know, some of these are vandalism because if a couple of 13-year-olds can break in and damage equipment, we can just imagine what a determined terrorist organization could do. Very important point there. Okay. We have several threads over on Twitter with information that you probably have not heard about. Let's start with independent researcher uh, Will Manitas, CEO of Science.io. He says on Saturday night, and that would have been Saturday night, December 3rd. Saturday night, December 3rd, a gunman opened fire on two power transformers in North Carolina. The attack plunged 45,000 homes into freezing darkness. This is the second sniper attack on a U.S. power station, the most important terror campaign you've never heard of. He says this event is a sober reminder of the Metcalf power station attacks just a few years back, which Chris Cuomo's guest referred to. You heard that moments ago. But Will Manitas gives us more details on that. He said, that's where an unknown attacker opened fire onto the power station, powering the entire Santa Clara Valley of California. That attack is still unsolved with no motive, no suspect. On April 16, 2013, a team of highly skilled gunmen opened fire on the Metcalf Power Substation in San Jose, California. Now, San Jose is a major metropolitan area. It's a top 35 metropolitan area in this country and is also part of the larger San Francisco-Oakland metropolitan area. This is a big deal. Not a uh, relatively rural area like Moore County, North Carolina. Anyway, April 16, 2013, team of highly skilled Gunman opened fire on the Metcalf Power Substation in San Jose, California. In just under 10 minutes, they disabled 17 transformers and caused $15 million in damages. Less than 10 minutes. Do you remember hearing about this? I remember hearing about it, but I don't remember hearing much about it. Anyway, he says, this is the most important terror attack that you've never heard of. So a quick thread here. Pacific Gas and Electric Metcalf Substation provides most of the Santa Clara Valley with power, including Facebook and Stanford University. A lot of Silicon Valley is on that grid. Now, almost 10 years later, the attackers are still unknown. They were never caught, and the motive is still unknown. So here's a timeline of the attack. From April 16, 2013, 12.58 a.m., fiber optic lines were cut 
not far from U.S. Route 101, just outside South San Jose, California. The substation loses Internet and phone service. 1.07 a.m., nine minutes later, some customers lost service. Cables in its vault near the Metcalf substation were also cut. 1.31 a.m., about a half hour after all this started, a surveillance camera pointed along a chain-link fence around the substation recorded a streak of light that investigators from the Santa Clara County Sheriff's Office think was a signal from a waved flashlight. It was followed by the muzzle flash of rifles. 1.37 a.m., Pacific Gas and Electric received an alarm from motion sensors at the substation, possibly from bullets grazing the fence. 1.41 a.m., Santa Clara County Sheriff's Department received a 911 call about gunfire sent by an engineer at a nearby power plant that still had phone service. 1.45 a.m., the first bank of transformers riddled with bullet holes and having leaked 52,000 gallons of oil overheated whereupon Pacific Gas and Electric's Control Center, about 90 miles north, received an equipment failure alarm. 1.50 a.m., another flashlight signal caught on film marked the end. More than 100 expended 7.62 times 39-millimeter cases were later found at the site. 1.51 a.m., officers arrived and found everything quiet. Unable to get past the locked fence and seeing nothing suspicious, they left. In the subsequent investigation, it became incredibly clear how professional an operation this was. Of the 100-plus shell casings found, all had been wiped clean of fingerprints. There were also stacks of rocks found all over the site, commonly used to gauge Firing distance. They knew exactly where to attack. Shooting directly at the cooling fans, the weakest part of the transformer. They knew where to dig to disable fiber optic cables and the location of every camera. There still exists no footage of how the gunmen entered the site. In the months following the attack, April 16, 2013, the United States government ran a simulated attack on the electrical grid. And he's got a link to the report. He says you can read the report below, but the results were terrifying. A group of unskilled actors could easily have disabled a majority of the U.S. grid. Following the report, A number of improvements were made to power stations over the following years, but this was not the end for Metcalf. In 2014, the site was raided. A team cut the fence and entered the site undetected, stealing copies of maintenance and exercise reports. To put this into into context, Metcalf was not one but two terror attacks on a critical piece of infrastructure. These attacks were carried out likely by a team with special forces experience operating and undetected and using unconventional weaponry. And we still 
nine years after the second terrorist attack, almost 10 years after the first one, we still have no idea why. And he links, he links to a video to watch the whole attack. PG&E stands for Pacific Gas and Electric. PG&E substation surveillance video on YouTube. This is uh, Will Manitis, M-A-N-I-D-I-S. All right, now, he says, going back to the original thread about how the recent attack in North Carolina reminds him of the older attack in Northern California. He says, while many recommendations from the GridX report were implemented, the North Carolina attack is a sobering reminder that our power grid still remains incredibly vulnerable. So what do we know about the North Carolina attack? Well, around 7 p.m., Saturday, December 3rd, 2022, two power stations were hit independently with gunfire. The wooden gate leading to the substation was also cut open, suggesting attackers possibly entered the site. The FBI and state authorities are on site, but the human damage is done. Now, this report was from Monday, December 5th. So about almost a week ago, he says, without cell conductivity, Wi-Fi or heat and sub-freezing cold, the human damage of these attacks is already well underway. And he's got a quote from a, uh, a news account here. The concern is that it won't be back on tonight. That's from Saturday night. Wilkins said he is concerned that ill-intentioned groups in other areas may realize how a well-coordinated attack can take out power for thousands. He said he hopes that the event will serve as a call to action for the county's power infrastructure to be better protected. Well, not just the county. Now, a theory has been floated out there in the mainstream media that some folks, some, of course, right-wing Christian conservative Trump supporters were upset that a town in that area had a bar in that area that had one of those so-called family-friendly drag queen events. So the idea is that some American patriots who are against that kind of thing, to retaliate against one bar having one drag queen event would try to take down the power grid for the whole area. Now, that may be how leftists think, and that may be how the feds want us to think, and the media may play along, but it doesn't make any sense. Now, we have another independent researcher whose stuff I've read before here on the show, uh, Joshua Steinman, who is also reporting on this and and giving some insights, frankly, that Will Manitas didn't give, kind of uh, amplifying what what went on. Uh, Joshua Steinman is uh, building the Galvanico cybersecurity for the World of Atoms company. He's also retired 
U.S. Navy, two times Iraq vet, former staffer of the National Security Council, and he, boy, he's got some serious insights on this thing. So that's coming up next. And and before we get out of here, after we get into everything Joshua Steinman is telling you about the power grid, we have to look at this new way that intelligence is being done with open source information, stuff that's available publicly that you don't even have to use spies on. Wall Street Journal has just a fascinating piece on that. And I think it kind of plays into what we're talking about, if you catch my drift. Look, if you have tried to buy a car recently, you realize there's such a chip shortage, you may have a hard time finding what you're looking for. People I know have actually bought vehicles from hundreds of miles away from where they live. That's where Red River Your Way comes in. Red River Your Way is a big old car dealership in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom. The freedom to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV the way you want to. You can buy online, they'll drive it to you, no matter where you are. Red River Your Way wants to make your car buying experience as easy and transparent as possible. That's why they've added technology to their website that puts you in complete control of your payment options and allows you to complete the entire purchase process online. But don't worry. Red River experts are still here to help you every step of the way if you have any questions. Red River makes it so easy. As you browse their selection, you'll see each vehicle has a button that says Explore Payment Options on it. Clicking that button guides you through a few easy questions that then create personalized payment options you have complete control over. All you have to do is adjust your preferences and all the math happens automatically so you can figure out what monthly payment works best for your budget. Red River Your Way makes car buying online easy. Your your whole car buying process is completely transparent. If you want to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV, order online from the nationwide car dealer that believes in freedom, including the freedom to buy it the way you want to. The dealer that will deliver your vehicle to your front door anywhere in the continental United States of America no matter where you live. RedRiverYourWay.com. You will be glad you did. All right, Patriot Mobile is America's only Christian conservative wireless carrier. Now more than ever, it's important to band together and support companies that share our conservative values. Patriot Mobile donates a portion of every dollar earned to organizations that fight for causes you care about. Patriot Mobile has exceptional nationwide coverage and uses the same towers the main carriers use. Patriot Mobile has plans to fit any budget along with great discounts for our veterans and first responder heroes as well as multi-line users. I know I'm saving money. When you switch to Patriot Mobile, you're shifting your support from the leftist progressive agendas of Big Mobile to the Christian conservative causes of Patriot Mobile. When you become a Patriot Mobile member, your dollars are helping to fund our God-given right to freedom. A portion of every dollar they earn is given back to the causes that support organizations that fight for First Amendment, religious freedom, freedom of speech, Second Amendment right to bear arms, sanctity of life, and the needs of our veterans and first responders. Switching is easy. All you have to do is just go to PatriotMobile.com or call their U.S.-based customer service team at 972-PATRIOT. Make sure you use promo code DOC, that's D-O-C, for free activation. Also, Patriot Mobile 
America's only Christian conservative wireless provider, now offers competitive business plans to suit companies of any size. If you're a conservative-owned business, tired of seeing your hard-earned dollars, go to Corporate Woke Agendas, switch to Patriot Mobile Business now. Learn more at business.patriotmobile.com or call their 100% U.S.-based member services team at 469-FREEDOM. Make sure you use promo code DOC, D-O-C, for free activation. That's business.patriotmobile.com or 469-FREEDOM. All right, let me take a look at what Joshua Steinman, a great analyst, is saying about this power grid situation. Okay, first of all, he says there is an ongoing wave of low-key attacks on the U.S. power grid. Nobody wants to really talk about it, so I will. Going to be a free-form thread as I'm midair, back-to-back once I land. He says, so retweet this. That's that's talk for Twitter, folks. And I will add content over the next 48 hours. And boy, did he add content. He says, current situation, thanks to folks like Will Manitas, the guy that I shared the thread with you earlier, many folks are tracking on the situation in North Carolina. Now, Will missed a key point, though. The power station that was attacked in Moore County, North Carolina, is on the western edge of Fort Bragg. Oh, boy. Special things in that neck of the woods. But North Carolina isn't the only place this is happening this week. It also happened in the Pacific Northwest and maybe other places as well. So he links to an article from the UK Daily Mail. Why is it? I often wonder, why is it that we get so much news about America from the UK Daily Mail first? Okay, here's the article. Feds say that substation vandalism in Oregon and Washington are similar to gun attack in North Carolina that left tens of thousands of people without power. Vandalism has involved hand tools, arson, firearms, metal chains. Motive is to cause widespread power failure and social disruption. Homeland Security has warned of increased threat of domestic terrorism. Okay, well, why don't you do something about it? That's that's all. Why not just go ahead and do something about it? How much would it cost to put armed guards? How many billions do we spend on Homeland Security, right? So how much would it cost to put armed guards around all these substations? Inquiring minds want to know. All right, here's the uh, here's the article, UK Daily Mail, because it matters. Okay, it matters. May not matter to you now, but it's below freezing outside, and next thing you know, it's below freezing inside. Oh, it'll matter. It'll matter. From the UK Daily Mail, Ruth Walker. 
December 7th, 2022, substations in Washington and Oregon have reported attacks similar to the one last weekend in North Carolina, which involved armed individuals and left tens of thousands without power and freezing, amid freezing temperatures and left one person dead. A federal memo obtained by News Nation, that's the, the new startup TV network that uh, took in Fredo Cuomo. A federal memo obtained by News Nation warned, and I quote, Power stations in Oregon and Washington have reported physical attacks on substations using hand tools, arson, firearms, and metal chains, possibly in response to an online call for attacks on critical infrastructure, unquote. The memo says, this is a federal memo, says the aim of attackers was to cause widespread power failures with the potential impact of social disruption and violent anti-government criminal activity. The memo also said, in recent attacks, criminal actors bypassed security fences by cutting the fence links, lighting nearby fires, shooting equipment from a distance, or throwing objects over the fence and onto the equipment. It's unclear how many facilities in both states were attacked, if locals were left without power, if there was a political motive for the attacks, and if anyone has been arrested. Well, I would think that if Locals were left without power in Washington and Oregon. That would be reported elsewhere, right? That's an odd way of putting it. Because we know locals were left without power for a while in North Carolina. Anyway, UK Daily Mail continues. Law enforcement has yet to identify a motive for the weekend's attack in Moore County, North Carolina. Though investigators were exploring the possibility that the gunfire was an attempt to disrupt a drag show scheduled to take place Sunday in Moore County, North Carolina. Have you ever heard anything stupider than that? Give me a break. Senator Tom McKinnis, state senator in North Carolina, Republican, said, it appears to be an intentional, willful, and malicious act, and the perpetrator will be brought to justice and prosecuted to the full extent of the law. Well, I hope so, but 10 years later, after one that was attacked over there in San Jose, California, nothing. Nothing. It would be nice if they caught the people who did in North Carolina. Okay, UK Daily Mail continues. At their peak, the outages affected around 45,000 homes, causing residents to lose heat and schools to close. Duke, wait a minute, schools are open on Saturday night? Duke Energy has now completed repairs and restored power to all but a fraction of those who lost electricity. Well, that's impressive. One person is known to have died at their home, which was without power at the time, but the cause of death is still to be confirmed. On November 11th, 12,000 people in Jones County, North Carolina, lost power for days following a criminal attack. Heard about that? That investigation is ongoing, and no arrests have been made in that case. Homeland Security then issued an alert November 30th, warning of an increased threat of domestic terrorism. It said targets of potential violence include public gatherings, faith-based institutions, the LGBTQ plus community. Don't leave out the plus now. Schools, racial and religious minorities, government facilities and personnel, 
U.S. critical infrastructure, the media, and perceived ideological opponents. Okay, ideological opponents of whom? I mean, why don't you just throw in all Americans and all America? I mean, it's like wallpaper. you got so many different potential targets, so many different groups there. It's like it just becomes noise. It says, and in February, three, quote, white supremacists, quote, pled guilty to planning rifle attacks on substations across the country. You ever heard that? Nope, I haven't either. Assistant Attorney General for National Security Matthew G. Olson said these three defendants admitted to engaging in a disturbing plot in furtherance of white supremacist ideology to attack energy facilities in order to damage the economy and stoke division in our country. It is unclear whether they have been sentenced. Well, why not look it up? White supremacist ideology. Have you met a white supremacist in the United States of America in the last 40 years? Do you have any idea who they're talking about, who these people would be? I mean, Charlie Manson wanted to start a race war, but that was over 50 years ago. But these people expect us to just take this seriously instead of trying to find out who's really doing this. And that's something that should occur, uh, should concern us. Okay, Joshua's timing continues. It says, according to the Daily Mail, a number of power grid facilities have been attacked and or threatened recently, and the mail did not include the Houston water shortages, which were due to a very unique power infrastructure failure. And he's got screenshots from Bloomberg News from November 28th. Houston blames water outage on failure of... Backup transformer. And a screenshot, a clip from the, uh, from the article on Bloomberg. Water pressure in the city's distribution network fell below levels required to ensure it's safe to drink on Sunday after a transformer blew at a major water treatment complex. That's what Mayor Sylvester Turner of Houston said during a media briefing. When a backup transformer also blinked off, the city was unable to feed generator power into the plants. Mayor Sylvester Turner described the backup glitch as a very unique and unfortunate situation. Oh, okay. Joshua Steinman continues on his thread here on Twitter. He says, all right, it's Saturday night. Picking this back up where I left off. So we've got a bunch of attacks ongoing against power substations. This is like a week after the North Carolina attack in Moore County. This is December 10th. He says, what do we think is going on? As I look at the required logistics and target locations, my opinion might change with more info. This looks like a professional operation. Let's dig in a little bit. Adding in a third set of attacks in or around Tampa, Florida in September, recounted here, And he links to an article from WFLA in Tampa Bay. News Channel 8 report shows intrusions at Duke Energy Power Stations in Tampa Bay and elsewhere in Florida. Oh, my goodness. He continues, he says, so now we have a basic timeline. 
September, Florida. November, Oregon and Washington. December, North Carolina. He says, operations like this likely have four phases, each of which take time. First phase, surveillance. Second phase, planning. Third phase, attack. Fourth phase, exfiltration. He says, I won't go into details, but these things take time, and their prep seems to have resulted in attacks against soft targets with low defensive postures. So from my perspective, he says, we have one or perhaps two teams. Now let's dig into why the attacks might have been perpetrated in these three locations. Short answer, these are not normal locations. He says, I mentioned how the North Carolina attacks are very, very close to Fort Bragg. There's a lot there, and not just the 82nd Airborne. He says, I'll just leave this here, and he leaves the Wikipedia page for the United States Army Special Operations Command. Oh, my goodness. That is the command charged with overseeing the various special operations forces of the United States Army. It's headquartered at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. It's the largest component of the United States Special Operations Command. It is an Army Service Component Command. Its mission is to organize, train, educate, man, equip, fund, administer, mobilize, deploy, and sustain Army Special Operations Forces to successfully conduct worldwide special operations. Oh, boy. He says, next, Tampa, Florida. That's home, of course, to USS OCOM and US Southcom. In this case, the attacks were in Clearwater, Zephyr Hills, Orange Blossom, and Bay Ridge, all of which are miles from McDill Air Force Base, which sits at the southern end of a small peninsula in the city. Finally, Washington State and Oregon. It's not as clear where these attacks were. Maybe some folks will do some digging and post it in the comments. But the U.S. Navy has a major presence in Washington State, and so does U.S. Army. We'll be interesting to know more. Now the spicy stuff. And by the way, there, there may have been a, a typo. U.S. Central Command is at McDill in Tampa, okay? Now the spicy stuff. He says, what do I think is going on? And we'll get to that in a minute. First of all, the best-kept secret in American healthcare. Let me share it with you. I have people who say, you know what, I heard you talking about this for years, and I finally decided to check it out, and thank God, and I don't know why. I don't know why I waited so long. Here you go. Are you having problems with sinuses and allergies? Are you experiencing dizziness, vertigo, problems with your blood sugar? How about psoriasis? How about migraines? The Arkansas Upper Cervical Center might be able to help you no matter where you live in the USA. Let me tell you how. Your skull weighs anywhere from 8 to 15 pounds. It rests on the top bone of your spinal column, the atlas, 
which only weighs two ounces. So it's really easy for your atlas to get out of alignment. If it does, your whole spinal column can get kinked up like a chain. When that happens, your central nervous system isn't able to communicate with the rest of your body as it's designed to do. I had severe hay fever for five or six weeks every spring all my life. When I got my atlas adjusted, the hay fever went away and it has never come back. The migraines went away and they never came back. Again, if you're suffering from sinus conditions, allergies, vertigo, psoriasis, problems with your blood sugar, migraines, do yourself a favor. Call my friends at the Arkansas Upper Cervical Center, 501-279-2009 for a free consultation. They've helped me. They've helped my wife. They've helped so many people that we know. Please call them to see if they can help you. That number again for your free consultation, 501-279-2009. If you're outside Central Arkansas, as most of our listeners are, just go to their website, turnmypoweron.com, click on the tab that says find a doctor near you, and I sure hope that you can. All right, I've been talking about how the world is going crazy with supply chain issues, record-setting inflation, sky-high gas prices, and woke corporations that stand against everything we believe in for a long time now. We all remember how the big box stores were allowed to stay open all during the pandemic, while so many little guys, small business owners, regular people were forced to close for good. The wealthiest people on earth became better off while mom-and-pop businesses suffered. The question is, what are we willing to do about it? What can we do about it? How can our voices be heard? Well, we can make a difference by voting with our dollars. Why continue shopping at big box stores if you can get the items you need from a family-owned company? Now, finally, we can shop factory direct at a family-owned, made-in-America manufacturer. Switch to America.com is helping Americans walk away from the big box conglomerates. That's why Switch to America was created, with regular folks like you and me in mind. One of the best ways to get around this crazy inflation is to shop with family-owned companies that put their customers first rather than shareholders and corporate executives. We now have over 30 different Patriot influencers aboard. I'm inviting you to join with fellow Patriots to cut off the cash flow of the big woke corporations that are trying to destroy our country. We're done with the woke globalist operation against humanity. Each of us can take market share away from these big businesses that have enjoyed unfair advantages. We can choose to help each other by shopping family-owned, made in America. The website is switchtoamerica.com. Join with over 2 million monthly shoppers that have already made the switch. Let's start voting with our dollars to make sure our purchases are supporting companies that promote freedom. Switchtoamerica.com is dedicated to offering family-owned alternatives for items we buy on a regular basis. Just go to switchtoamerica.com when they ask how you heard about us. Of course, click on my name, Doc Washburn. All right, let's get back to looking at the uh, the power grid here. Joshua Steinman says, Now, the spicy stuff. What do I think is going on? Well, a few things. Number one, our critical infrastructure is not well protected, physically or digitally. Number two, foreign and domestic insurgent groups operate openly on U.S. soil. 
Number three, when you think about it, I mean, we've had reports of the Chinese opening up their own uh, police departments in the U.S., in big cities, right? Right? And FBI Director Christopher Wray being aware of it, because he was asked about it last time, he's in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee. So again, number one, our critical infrastructure is not well protected physically or digitally. Number two, foreign and domestic insurgent groups operate openly in U.S. soil. Number three, so-called covert actions really aren't so covert anymore. So, first he says, let's deal with protection of critical infrastructure. From Oldsmar, the insider attack on the Tampa water treatment facility, to the San Jose Metcalf sniper attack, to black energy attacks over in Europe, Lone Wolf and state actors are increasingly targeting critical infrastructure. Okay, foreign and domestic insurgent groups, part one. Did you know? Well, he's reading my mind here. Or I was reading his. Did you know the Chinese Communist Party maintains clandestine police stations in the United States from which they likely conduct both dry and wet operations? Oh, my goodness. And he links to the New York Post. Take a quick look at that. From September 30th of this year, report says China has opened police stations in U.S. and Canada to monitor Chinese citizens. Oh, my goodness. China has opened dozens of overseas police service stations around the globe to monitor its citizens living abroad, including one location in New York City, three in Toronto. A report by Safeguard Defenders, a human rights watchdog, released earlier in September, says these operations eschew official bilateral police and judicial cooperation and violate the international rule of law and may violate the territorial integrity in third countries involved in setting up a parallel policing mechanism using illegal methods. The report titled 110 Overseas. Chinese transnational policing gone wild details China's extensive efforts to combat so-called fraud by its citizens living overseas, in part by opening several police stations on five continents that have assisted Chinese authorities in, quote, carrying out policing operations on foreign soil, unquote. Did you know about this? Because U.S. Senate found out about it. They asked Christopher Ray about it. Oh, yeah, that troubles him. Is he going to do anything about it? No, obviously not. Joshua Steinman says, okay, foreign and domestic insurgent groups, part two. Additionally, there are both criminal gangs, U.S. forks of drug cartels and native U.S. outfits, and anarchist-slash-leftist groups that have a history of conducting violent, decentralized operations. And he links to the article at... American Mind, AmericanMind.org, the great Kyle Scheidler, who has the article here, The Real History of Antifa, The Dark History of the Radical Left's Enforcement Arm. And I would recommend that you take a look at it because, and and by the way, Kyle Scheidler, Director and Senior Analyst for Homeland Security and Counterterrorism at the Center for Security Policy, 
But Antifa has always been an international movement. It's not strictly and specifically a group of American young knuckleheads. It is an international movement. Um, you know what? It's only a seven-minute read. I owe it to you. Here it is. And by the way, this is from June 3rd, 2020, when the nation was going up in flames in many places. With riots and civil unrest metastasizing across the U.S., President Trump declared he intends to designate Antifa as a terrorist group. Predictably, the talking heads rushed out to declare that Antifa doesn't really exist. And even if it did, President Trump couldn't possibly target it using the legal designation. They argue Antifa as an amorphous blob of discontents, not a functioning organization, and certainly not one which could be designated and targeted for concentrated counterterrorism enforcement. As usual, the so-called experts on Twitter don't know what they are talking about. Reality is both simpler and more complex. To begin at the beginning, Antifa, or its real name, Antifaschistische Action, which is two German words, was born during the street fights of the 1932 Weimar Republic. It was founded by the Stalinist Communist Party of Germany, although various communist anti-fascist defense units were associated with that group much earlier. Anti-fascist action's sole purpose was to help the Stalinist Communist Party of Germany combat other political parties for control of the streets and the revolutionary politics of the rapidly failing Weimar Republic. And yes, they fought the Nazis, but they also fought liberal parties, conservative parties, and anyone and everyone who got in their way. While these early antecedents were short-lived, it is useful to view Antifa in this context. More than anything, Antifa exists to serve as a tool of revolutionary politics in a failed or failing state. Antifa would reestablish itself in the early 1980s, also in Germany, out of autonomism. That is an anti-authoritarian, anarcho-Marxist ideology associated with the communist urban guerrilla organizations of the 1970s and 80s, Europe, like Red Army Faction and the Red Brigade. Autonomism will find a home among the young punks of Germany's squatters' rights movement. Around this time, Antifa tactics like the Black Bloc, where large numbers of rioters dress in black and move together in formation as part of a larger protest, were developed. Antifa would form in a similar fashion in the United States, but under a different name. According to Antifa lore, an effort by young punks to expel neo-Nazis and white supremacists from the music scene led to the formation of Anti-Racist Action, or ARA, beginning in the Midwest and then spreading outward. As chapters formed in various cities, regional councils and networks were formed, 
such as the Midwest Anti-Fascist Network in 1995. But president at the birth of ARA were members of America's longtime revolutionary clique, with roots going all the way back to the domestic terror group Weather Underground. Sound familiar? Consulting the young anti-racist punks in the formation of ARA were members of the John Brown Anti-Klan Committee. Several separate ARAs would go on to form one of the largest Antifa networks in the country, Torch Antifa, whose website was registered by a former member of the John Brown Anti-Klan Committee, the JBAKC. That was formed as a front for the May 19th Communist Organization, the MCO, itself founded out of the remnants of the Weather Underground, Black Liberation Army, the FALN, which was a Puerto Rican terrorist group, and other terrorist groups in the 1960s and 70s. They chose the name May 19th Communist Organization because May 19th was the birthday of both, both Malcolm X and Ho Chi Minh, former terrorist leader of North Vietnam. Following a split in the Weather Underground leadership, over whether to emphasize class struggle or racial struggle, the MCO emphasized working for black liberation. Members of the MCO were responsible for several bombings and robberies in the 1980s, including the infamous 1981 Brinks armored car robbery. JBAKC used its newsletter, Death to the Klan, to highlight street fighting with Klansmen, accuse Reagan administration officials of white supremacy, endorse MCO bank robberies as expropriation, and promote communist insurgencies taking place in Nicaragua and El Salvador. It is important, again, to keep in mind that this was all done under the guise of fighting white supremacy. The logic of JBAKC and the May 19th Communist Organization and the same ideology which drives Antifa today, was that at its core, the United States is founded on white supremacy and therefore needs to be destroyed. Their cops and Klan go hand-in-hand slogan suggests there is no distinction between neo-Nazis and America's institutions. Of course, in the age of the 1619 Project, the fake news history from the New York Times about how this country got started, such positions are no longer held just by members of underground communist terror organizations. They are de rigueur in newsrooms, faculty lounges, and among the staff of mayors and attorney general's offices. The modern Antifa movement advances the robust legacy infrastructure of the revolutionary left through a belief in the efficacy of loose organization. The basic building block of direct action organizing is the affinity group which is actually and exactly what it sounds like, a group of like-minded people, affinity, who share a common objective. Pro-Antifa website Crimeth Inc. notes, this leaderless format has proven effective for guerrilla activities of all kinds, as well as for what the Rand Corporation calls swarming tactics, in which many unpredictable autonomous groups overwhelm a centralized adversary. It says you should go to every demonstration in an affinity group with a shared sense of your goals and capabilities. If you're in an affinity group that has experience taking action together, 
you will be much better prepared to deal with emergencies and make the most of unexpected opportunities. Now, the article continues, multiple affinity groups can organize into what are described as clusters of affinity groups. Members of individual affinity groups may be members of other radical left organizations and call upon them for assistance. Antifa members are likely to have ties to political organizations with Antifa support committees such as the Democrat Socialists of America, the DSA, the International Workers of the World, the Wobblies, the Revolutionary Communist Party, the RCP, or any number of other local and regional radical left organizations or collectives. Antifa draws resources and recruits from them all. Where necessary, multiple clusters planning large actions may use spokes councils to coordinate. Each affinity group or cluster may send spokespersons to negotiate on the general goals of the action. These methods are no less organized for being non-hierarchical and help Antifa avoid police and law enforcement investigations, as well as preserve the above-ground support structures from facing criminal consequences for the acts they enable. Antifa is in many ways an improved iteration of prior militant leftist guerrilla organizations. While the Weather Underground wrote high-profile manifestos and their members became household names, they were also forced into hiding by aggressive but largely traditional law enforcement methods. In part, they failed because they misjudged how ready society was for their message, banked everything on militant actions, and gave up mass organizing. Antifa, with its anarchist outer structure and plausible deniability, allows the radical left to have their cake and eat it too. And now, with a successful promulgation of the radical message of America as bastion of white supremacy by presidential candidates, cable news anchors, and generations of tenured professors, Antifa is unlikely to lack for recruits and support, rhetorical or otherwise, any time in the near future. In all turbulent periods of revolutionary politics, whether the 1930s, the 1970s, or today, the ability to project force on the streets to punish enemies is a valuable asset. For the left today, Antifa is that force. That is Kyle Scheidler over at AmericanMind.org, the article from June 3rd, 2020, entitled The Real History of Antifa. Going back to Joshua Steinman, looking at this whole problem with the attacks on the power grid, he says, finally, evolution of covert action. For a confluence of reasons, American intelligence and special operations often get leaked pretty quickly. CIA operations in Soviet Afghanistan became a best-selling movie. Osama bin Laden raid, well, that fostered multiple best-selling books and so on. Governments often conduct operations overtly, covertly, or clandestinely in order to calibrate potential fallout. There's interesting stuff happening in the world. Certain governments might want to retaliate in a deniable fashion. In this case, there are a few possibilities. If a foreign actor, it's likely that this is either a clandestine or a covert act. Why? Because the perpetrator doesn't want to be able to be blamed for what's happening. So, What does that look like? 
how to run a deniable attack, have a covert direct action asset, for example, illegals or covered individuals, fall in on an infrastructure, for example, weapons caches, built by other parts of the same organization, or outsource it to criminal elements with potential with potential logistics support. There's recent history of both types of attacks happening in the U.S., like this very mysterious assassination operation in Oklahoma. All right, let's go to that link from November 23rd this year. Wu Chen, 45-year-old man arrested for executing four Chinese nationals on Oklahoma marijuana farm. Wu Chen was nabbed in Miami, and authorities said he faces charges of murder and shooting with intent to kill. Back in Oklahoma. Good grief. So Joshua Steinman says that's a very mysterious assassination operation in Oklahoma. He says, or the Iranian attempt to assassinate the Saudi ambassador at a popular D.C. restaurant. Now, that's been a few years ago. He clicks on the Wikipedia link. Okay, that was 2011. October 11, 2011, United States officials alleged there was a plot tied to the Iranian government to assassinate Saudi ambassador Adel al-Jubair in the United States. The plot was referred to as the Iran assassination plot or the Iran terror plot in the media, while the FBI named the case Operation Red Coalition. Iranian nationals Mansur Arbabsiar and Golam Shakuri were charged October 11, 2011 in federal court in New York with plotting to assassinate Ambassador Al-Jubair. According to U.S. officials, the two planned to kill Al-Jubair at a restaurant with a bomb and subsequently bombed the Saudi embassy and the Israeli embassy in Washington, D.C. Bombings in Buenos Aires were also discussed. Arbabsiar was arrested September 29, 2011 at JFK International Airport in New York while Shakuri remained at large. On October 24, 2011, Arbabsir pleaded not guilty. May 2013, after pleading guilty, he was sentenced to 25 years imprisonment. Oh, that's not enough. It's debated whether the Iranian government condoned or facilitated the plot. There you go, plausible deniability. Some experts suggested the planners may be rogue elements within the Iranian Secret Service. Oh, yeah, right. Plausible deniability. Anyway, Joshua Steinman continues, he says, to put this all together, if there was a nation that wanted to throw sand in the gears, as it were, it might look like this, especially if they are operating under the assumption that these types of attacks might lead to larger cascading failures. And he links to a news article from NBC News, North Carolina substation attack raises security concerns for U.S. electric grid. Oh, my goodness. The recent attack on two North Carolina substations that cut power to thousands of people has raised concerns about security standards for the nation's electric grid and its numerous power stations, which have faced greater threats in recent years. 
Again, this is NBC News. Outside of weather, suspected and confirmed physical attacks on the electric grid infrastructure have been the largest cause of electrical disturbance events since 2014 when, in response to an attack in California the year before, private companies that run power stations were required to increase security standards, according to an NBC News analysis of public Department of Energy reports. Now, remember that. They analyzed public reports from the Department of Energy because we got a tie-in on that here in a little bit. Nearly 600 electric emergency incidents and disturbances were caused by suspected and confirmed physical attacks and vandalism on the electric grid in those nine years, according to the reports. Okay, this should be front-page news every day. What do you mean nearly 600 electric emergency incidents and disturbances were caused by suspected and confirmed physical attacks and vandalisms in nine years? Did you have any idea? Have you ever heard this before? I mean, that's nuts. I mean, they're talking like uh, on average 66 terrorist attacks on energy substations each year from 2014 through 2021. It says there have been 106 attacks or vandalism incidents from January through August of 2022, which is the latest the Energy Department data tracks. So it's going up, not down. Among the years reviewed by NBC News, 2022 is the first that reached triple digits, and it only contains eight months of data. The incidents, which are self-reported by power companies to the federal government, provide little to no detail about what occurred, but experts said they can range from the theft of copper wire to planned assaults aimed at causing power disruptions, as is what is suspected to have happened in North Carolina. That's just, uh, that's insane that we're not taking it more seriously. Back to Joshua Steinman. He says, why does the U.S. response to this look slow? Because the U.S. system isn't exactly built to detect and or confront these possibilities. First of all, Local law enforcement often responds first. Second, the FBI is run as a series of over 50 incongruous fiefdoms. You know, you got your FBI districts, right? Third, national responses are rare. He says, at the same time, there already has been a bit of movement nationally. So it isn't true that nothing is happening, but imagine trying to bring together over 20 simultaneous investigations being run by folks in multiple states. It's just hard to do. At this point, he links to uh, an article from NewsNationNow.com entitled, Federal Law Enforcement Warned of Attacks on Power Plants. This is from December 6, 2022, days after what officials called a targeted attack on power substations in North Carolina. News Nation has exclusively obtained a recent federal law enforcement memo that warned of something strikingly similar. And that's that's what was alluded to earlier. So he says, lack of national coordination in the so-called foreign-sponsored scenario is double-edged sword. What do I mean? Imagine being the foreign government trying to send a message, and on the U.S. side, there's nobody who's receiving the message. 
Got it? Because just local sheriff's officers, police departments are investigating. Kind of like if a tree falls in the forest and nobody hears it. He says, in that scenario, a foreign government trying to send a message to the USA and nobody on our side receiving the message. In that scenario, a nation in conflict with the U.S. is trying to send a message, we can take down your grid. Translated across oceans through a dozen-plus coordinated yet deniable attacks, it's very possible that nobody even understands that a message is being sent. Really? So the brain trust, right? Anthony Blinken, Secretary of State. Lloyd Austin, Secretary of Defense. Whoever the National Security Advisor is, these people wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't understand the message being sent because they're not all that bright? Uh, yeah, yeah. In the end, tackling these types of challenges comes down to very human problems, communication, coordination, correlation. I wish I had better answers than this. But having spent four years on the National Security Council at the White House worried about them, I don't. He says, talking about this stuff openly is one of the few tools we have left, and I think it is one of the best. So for folks with other thoughts or theories or observations, I welcome them in the comments. Talking about this stuff openly. Now, I mentioned earlier in the show today that the Wall Street Journal has a remarkable new article about the challenges of open source intelligence. And it is remarkable. A guy named Warren P. Strobel wrote this op-ed for the Wall Street Journal. And um, it's, uh, it's amazing. Article entitled, Rise of Open Source Intelligence Tests U.S. Spies. Forgive me. Um, this is not the op-ed section of the journal. This is like news, okay? News article. And he has a picture Satellite imagery of Moscow amassing troops near the border with Ukraine allowed analysts to predict the Russian invasion in February. This is going to blow your mind. He says, as Russian troops surged toward Ukraine's border last fall, a small Western intelligence unit swung into action, tracking signs Moscow was preparing to invade. It drew up escape routes for its people and wrote twice-daily intelligence reports. The unit drafted and sent to its leaders an assessment on February 16, 2022, that would be eerily prescient. They said Russia would likely invade Ukraine on February 23rd, U.S. East Coast time. The intelligence shop had just eight analysts and used only publicly available information, not spy satellites, not secret agents, 
only publicly available information. And by the way, this intelligence unit belonged to multinational chemicals company Dow Incorporated, D-O-W. You used to call it Dow Chemical. Didn't belong to any government. John Robert, Director of Global Intelligence and Protection for Dow Incorporated, whose unit helps the company manage business risk and employee safety, said, I'm leading an intelligence center that accurately predicted the invasion of Ukraine without any access to sensitive sources. Is your mind blown yet? Because mine is. Supercharged by the Ukraine war, the rise of open source intelligence, they call it OSINT, OSINT, which comprises everything from commercial satellite imagery to social media posts and purchasable databases, poses revolutionary challenges for the Central Intelligence Agency, the CIA, and its sister spy agencies, according to former senior officials who spent decades working in those agencies' classified spaces. Dow Incorporated is just one of a fast-growing number of companies, nonprofit groups, and countries transforming publicly available data into intelligence for strategic and economic advantage. China has the largest, most focused effort, while U.S. spy agencies with deeply ingrained habits of operating in the shadows have been slow to adapt to a world in which much of what is important isn't secret, according to dozens of officials and many studies. Really? So our intel community is, is running way behind. What a shock. What a shock. I'm just, I'm just shocked. The CIA is simultaneously dealing with a closely related challenge. It is pivoting from two decades focused on terrorism towards spying on a new primary intelligence target, China. That's going to be tough. It's going to be really tough because we used to have human intelligence in China, but when Hillary was doing all her stuff on non-secure email, China apparently figured out who all our spies were over there, and they uh, killed all of them. So good luck trying over again. But I digress. But some officials say the technological tsunami facing U.S. intelligence agencies poses a more fundamental challenge than merely swapping priorities. Paul Colby, former CIA officer who directs the intelligence project at Harvard Kennedy School's Belfer Center, says the agency is used to running this way and that depending upon what the demand of the day is. But he said the growing dominance of open source data represents a uniquely difficult test, especially, particularly for the CIA. There will always be some tasks only secretive agencies with classified data and covert human sources can do, according to current and former CIA officials. The CIA obtained elements of Russian President Vladimir Putin's war plan for invading Ukraine and warned U.S. allies in Kiev. Or did they? At the end of July, it tracked and killed al-Qaeda leader Ayman al-Zawahiri, ending a 21-year hunt. But by some estimates, more than 80% of what a U.S. president or military commander needs to know comes from OSINT, 
the open source intelligence. And not from foreign agents, not from spy satellites, not from expensive eavesdropping platforms. Officials said that means the CIA and other agencies need to give priority to vetting and sifting through troves of OSINT. That ranges from YouTube videos to public, publicly posted genetic databases or else risk missing the next threat or looming global crisis. And they need to do so faster than U.S. rivals, principally China. You know what? I, I had a, a crazy idea. When they killed Osama bin Laden, they got all kinds of computer hard drives with all kinds of information on there. And last I heard, they, they haven't touched them. Yeah, there's all kinds of stuff they probably ought to be doing. Just, just a thought. But I digress. Back to the article from the Wall Street Journal. Threats to U.S. security are considerable and growing, according to interviews with many officials and numerous studies. U.S. intelligence agencies could miss signs of the next global pandemic that are hiding in plain sight. Well, yeah, I would think Fauci probably wanted to. Uh, But I digress again. China could leap ahead on technologies such as quantum computing and artificial intelligence while using public data to identify U.S. intelligence officers. And the $90 billion U.S. intelligence community could see its role diminish as private companies generate more intelligence insights that a U.S. president and his top advisors would want to know. The nonprofit C4 ads used shipping databases, satellite imagery, property records, and other public data to trace the source of Russian GPS spoofing that disguised Russian ships' locations to a defense facility near one of Putin's dachas. That's the Russian word for like a country home, something like that, a villa. So they did that according to a November presentation of the Harvard Intelligence Project. A U.K. firm, 3AI, used artificial intelligence and public information to estimate the cost to Russian companies of the Ukraine war and subsequent economic sanctions at $372 billion, 50% larger than indicated by stock markets and equity researchers. Bellingcat, the investigative website, used phone and travel data to identify three operatives from Moscow's FSB intelligence service. It said attempted to kill Russian opposition politician Alexei Navalny. Robert Cardillo, who served in several senior U.S. intelligence roles, said, I don't worry about the intelligence community going away. I worry about it mattering. Government policymakers, he said, could rely less on traditional intelligence briefings and more on open-source products, which are generally cheaper and easier to access. Well, I think so if they're open. He says, I worry about customers voting with their mouse click. Now, a congressionally mandated report on OSINT, reviewed by the Wall Street Journal, found the U.S. government is already behind China and other competitors. Adversaries' use of publicly available data outpaces ours to fully harness the power of OSINT for national security needs. That's from the report, completed in February by METER, M-I-T-R-E, a federally funded nonprofit research organization. It has not been made public, but Wall Street Journal somehow got a, got a copy of some of it here, obviously. China puts a premium on, on OSINT and has an estimated 100,000 analysts given the task of scouring scientific and technological developments 
globally, mostly in the U.S., according to research by William Hannes of Georgetown University. The system for gathering such intelligence is centrally directed but functions at all levels in separate but interlocking organizations, according to Mr. Hannes. Oh, and his partner, Hui Mi Chang, who helped him write his 2021 paper. I wonder, Hui Mi Chang, I wonder where that guy's from. Anyway, uh, Jason Matheny, former head of the U.S. Intelligence Advanced Research Projects Activity and the president of RAND Corporation, which wasn't that supposed to be a CIA front? Also a federally funded research organization, said, we don't have a comparable effort. It really is an immense enterprise in China. Beijing's authoritarian rulers do not face legal or ethical quandaries that U.S. and European spy agencies confront when sifting through public information that might contain individuals' private data, according to the officials and studies. According to the officials and studies. Why why do you even have to put that in there? You know what China is. Totalitarian dictatorship. How many babies they kill? One-child policy. I mean, in America... They killed over 60 million babies in abortion. In China, they are forced abortions. So you're telling me that officials and studies say that Beijing's authoritarian rulers don't face legal and ethical quandaries. You don't, you don't have to qualify it. But I digress. Senior U.S. intelligence officials say they recognize the challenges and are making significant changes. CIA Director William Burns gave higher priority to accelerated outreach to the private sector and academia after an internal review he had ordered found the agency wasn't capitalizing on such partnerships. Last year, Mr. Burns established new agency units focused on China and on technology and transnational threats. He frequently notes that nearly a third of the CIA's employees work in technology, science, and related fields. Analysts generally praise Mr. Burns and Director of National Intelligence, Avril Haines, for attempting to reorient the huge U.S. intelligence apparatus, but OSINT initiatives remain disjointed, underfunded, and underprioritized, according to the officials and studies. Retired Army Lieutenant General Robert Ashley, former director of the Pentagon's Defense Intelligence Agency, the DIA, said, It's not as if we're not using it. We can't do this at a scale because it's not funded. With all the money our intel community is wasting, they don't have the funds to do the right thing here. That's amazing, isn't it? But I digress. At the CIA, efforts to give OSINT a more central role have repeatedly been stymied by a culture that has necessarily revolved around highly classified information and secret operations, according to former agency officials and others. Oh, well, here we go. We have a quote from U.S. Representative Adam Schiff, chairman of the House Intelligence Committee. He's the guy that um, had an improper relationship with a female Chinese spy. As a matter of fact, he's the guy that the communist Chinese government got elected to Congress. So let's hang on his every word. Yeah, He says... Culture change is happening, but it's happening slowly in the U.S. intelligence community. Meanwhile, the world is moving at lightning speed. That doesn't bother you, does it, Adam? Just when I'm thinking this is a really great report here, 
They're taking Adam Schiff seriously. Unbelievable. You know, you could have left out that little uh, one-sentence paragraph. You could have left that out. The meter report, while pointedly noting that the limited changes don't go far enough, says U.S. intelligence officials have a significant bias against the use of open-source intelligence. Great. Well, it sounds like we have the wrong people in charge, right? In a recent post on the LinkedIn app, Jennifer Eubank, the CIA's deputy director for digital innovation, said the agency's open-source enterprise, which she oversees, has undergone a dramatic transformation in recent years and that publicly available information will be the CIA's initial go-to intelligence source in the near future. The near future. What, within six months, within 12 months, within three years, within five years? The near future. Yeah, yeah. Pie in the sky, by and by. In interviews, senior intelligence officials, who probably shouldn't be talking to anybody, really, when you think about it, said the CIA is integrating OSINT more into its analysis and operations on China and other topics. Yes, please, let's tell China what we're doing. Okay, they are. They said when used correctly, it will enable the agency to focus spies, satellites, and other intelligence-gathering tools on what is truly secret, such as the hidden intentions of foreign adversaries. One official cautioned that U.S. intelligence cannot simply take OSINT products from outsiders and feed them into analysis destined for the White House or other government agencies. It must first vet the sourcing and methodology. Oh, really? Like the idea that uh, Trump was colluding with the Russians? Have y'all vetted that yet? Because Mueller said he couldn't find any evidence, and yet y'all still keep saying it. FBI Director Christopher Wray, under oath, giving testimony. Senate Judiciary Committee earlier this year, when asked, was the whole idea of Trump-Russia collusion a hoax, he said, I wouldn't use that term. Really? So y'all still act like stuff that you know isn't true is true. So, yeah, good luck with that. But I digress. The article says, yet basic questions, including which agency should take the lead on OSINT or whether a new agency should be created, are unsettled. Oh, please. Yeah, we got to have a new agency. We don't have nearly a big enough federal government. Yeah, great idea. New agency. Ms. Avril Haines has commissioned a series of studies on how U.S. intelligence should hand open source should handle open source data, including where the effort should be centered. According to officials, no final decisions have been announced. Nah, they're going to wait until uh, Kamala is in the White House to do that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, you know, going to wait until we we all have to learn Chinese. Uh, Spokeswoman Nicole DeHaye says the Office of the Director of National Intelligence is working to position the intelligence community to most effectively leverage open source intelligence, a valuable and increasingly critical component of our national security mission. That's Warren P. Strobel, uh, December 12, 2022, Wall Street Journal, article entitled, Rise of Open Source Intelligence Tests U.S. Spies. Subtitle, China outpaces efforts by U.S. intelligence agencies to harness power of publicly available data. You know, sometimes, uh, I'm probably crazy, but sometimes you get the impression that maybe they just don't 
care. You know? Maybe that's what it is. All right. Um, having said that, it certainly sounds like it's time once again to say, hit it, Brian. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. It's the Doc Washburn Show Tweet of the Day. Brought to you by RedRiverYourWay.com. Red River Your Way, the big old car dealership in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom, including your freedom to buy the car, truck, van, or SUV of your choice online the way you want to. Have delivered to your front door anywhere in the continental United States of America. Today's tweet of the day is from a gentleman named Justin Bullington. Pastor, husband, father of four, Bible teacher, and host of Theo Bros podcast. And he says, sleep well. First of all, God is in control. Psalm 115, verse 3. Second of all, he is our protector. Psalm 4, verse 8. Third of all, he never sleeps. Psalm 121, verses 3 and 4. Fourthly, he never leaves us. Hebrews 13, 5. And fifthly, he gives his people peace, Isaiah 26.3. You know, those are wonderful and great promises. But I'm thinking it would be a good idea to actually share those verses with you. So I go over to my um, Olive Tree Bible app on my phone, and it's just so easy. Psalm. 115, verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. So that's the one talking about God is in control. Next, Psalm chapter 4, verse 8. In peace I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord. Make me dwell in safety. Next, Psalm 121, verse 3 and 4. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Now remember, when he says, he who keeps Israel, if you're a believer and the Messiah of Israel, you've been grafted in. This is not just talking about the physical Israel. The New Testament talks about that a lot. Um, Next, under He Never Leaves Us, Hebrews 13, verse 5, Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Last but certainly not least, from Isaiah Chapter 26, verse 3. You keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you, because he trusts in you. Verse 4. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. I hope that I've been able to be a blessing to you, regardless of all the bad news that I gave you, by winding it up with reassurances to all who find themselves 
in him. Right, you've been listening to episode 299 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. The views and opinions expressed on the Doc Washburn Show do not necessarily reflect those of our advertisers, but they love us and we love them. Today's program has been produced by Tim Terrible, directed by Mick Messy. This has been a terribly messy production. Portions of today's show will be taken overseas and dropped. If you'd like a transcript of today's episode of the all-new Doc Washburn Show, simply peel the roof off a Rolls-Royce panel truck and send it to Mansour's Computer Solutions, 7th floor of the Ephemeral B. Smoot Building, Whitehall, Arkansas, in care of Sheriff Mansour Sempier X. And that's the way it is. Sunday, December 11th, 2022.